morning. My name is Jeremy Talley. I'm one of the elders, and uh, we are going to continue our series in Matthew. Excited to do so. Um, so if you have a Bible, turn it to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be addressing verses 21 to 28 this morning. You know, I was thinking this week about a movie I had seen recently uh, depicting a true story. After the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the United States jumped into World War II, and there was an unprecedented amount of young men who answered the call and signed up to go to war. There's one particular man that I knew nothing about until they made a movie about him, and his name was PFT Desmond T. Doss. Many of you have probably seen Hacksaw Ridge, that movie. This particular young man had unique convictions. He, uh, through his faith, uh, had come to the conclusion that he was, in terms of his walk with Christ, required to be a pacifist. And as you can imagine, that didn't go well with joining the military, right? And uh, it's depicted in the movie, time and time again, his battle, where he does fight, is he fights to be a part of the mission. He fights to be... In the, in the army, in the war, but refuses to pick up a rifle. And of course, you see these scenes where commanders are saying, we're not going to send you out there without a rifle. What are you doing? Right? We're, this is war, son. Like, pick up a gun. We're going to war. And he committed to being a part of the mission, but had this personal conviction where he wouldn't do that. And as the story goes, and the reality of Desmond Doss is that he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Unique, very few thing for people to win. And Desmond Doss won the Congressional Medal of Honor because despite refusing to bear arms during um, the Battle of Okinawa, he was with his men without a rifle when they were attacked. And as the attack happened on this ridge, Hence the movie Hacksaw Ridge. There was wounded men strewn everywhere, dead and wounded men laying everywhere. And in, in those that were alive after the barrage and the ambush and the attack that they experienced were able to scramble back to the ridge and, and use ropes to climb down off the ridge and to escape the danger of the battle. But Desmond Doss stayed. He stayed up on the ridge through the smoke and the blood and the dirt, he crawled for hours and hours and hours, and he grabbed every living man he could find, and this man threw him on his back, and he crawled down the rope with them attached to him, tied to him, any way he could get them, depending on their injuries, and he crawled down the ropes and dropped them off to safety, and then crawled right back up the ropes onto the ridge, and he crawled back. And after hours and hours and hours of crawling through the dirt and the battle and more fire that he took, it was found that he saved, on his own, 75 men. And he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. He had a sense of duty that was unique, if you've ever seen the movie. He had to be a part of it. His willingness to suffer for it. Led to the 
saving of 75 men in a battle that would have surely been lost. Well, let's turn to Matthew 16. And we're going to talk about mission. Jesus is getting to a point here where there is a new transition in the structure of the book of Matthew. And he is saying for the first time of four times to come exactly what's going to happen to him. If you remember, we just read the recorded events of an amazing moment, right, where Peter uh, confesses what's revealed to him from God, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on the heels of that confession, the story turns a little dark. And Jesus turns to the disciples and for the first time begins to explain exactly what it means that he is exactly what Peter said. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. You didn't get this on your own, Peter. God revealed this to you. And let me explain to you exactly what that now means. So here's Jesus, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. And everybody said, Amen. Well, things are going pretty good for Peter for a second, right? And then they all, the wheels come off, right? They fell apart very quickly. You are the rock, and upon you in this confession that you just made from God, revealing that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I'm going to build my church. Get behind me, Satan, right? This is a big, this is a big transition that happens in the life of Peter. If he was on a high for a second, he blew it, right? He quickly messed things up. This rock is beginning to crumble a little bit. What an incredible narrative we see between Jesus and his disciples. And it teaches us so much. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So immediately.
shortly after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus then begins for the first time to explain to them what it means to be the Messiah. Hey guys, listen. I know you have ideas in your mind about who the Messiah is, but let me tell you what is about to happen. I must suffer. You're right. I'm the Messiah. Guess what that means? I must suffer. Many things. I'm going to be killed and raised up. You know, the English word falls short in describing what must really means in this passage. The degree of intensity that Jesus is using it to explain to his disciples what's about to happen. See, the reality is that this mission Jesus is on, this must, because he's the Messiah, is not driven by human necessity. This is not like I'm going to hear from my kids or even myself say after church today, I must go to lunch, right? I'm going to feel a necessity there, right? <clears throat> Anybody? All right. I know you just ate a bunch of turkey. Uh, the tryptophan is still having its effect on you as it is me, I would imagine. But I, after church, man, I must go to lunch. It is a thing. Whether I go or I eat it, it's going to happen. Something is going to go into my mouth, right? Um, this is not driven, though, by human necessity. This is not, I must do this or I must do that. This, this intensity by which Jesus is describing to his disciples must, that what must happen, it's not driven by a human necessity. It's, it's, it's divine. It's God's will. And it must happen in the sense that it will happen. There's an intensity that Jesus is speaking in as he says to his disciples, this is, guys, I have to suffer, and this is non-negotiable. This is incapable of being altered. It's, it's a defined necessity. I, Peter, disciple, yes, I'm the Messiah. Guess what? I must go to Jerusalem. I must be delivered into the hands of the Jewish religious authorities. I must suffer many things. I must be killed. I'll raise on the third day. Jesus is declaring God's will to the Messiah. And, and I think we see here, understandably, to some degree, that their vision of what the Messiah was to be was different. Their vision was human, right? You know, he's going to rule. He's going to reign. And, and you can see the conflict in Peter's mind. I just declared you're the Messiah, the Christ. You tell me God told me that. And I'm super excited about it. And in my mind, and in my human vision of what's supposed to happen, is we're going to kick the Romans out of here and you're going to rule. And Jesus says, I must die. I must suffer. This is my mission. And Peter, looking through human eyes, and the disciples as well, they're not recognizing what this really means. That this is a defined 
a divine necessity. They're looking at it in such human means that it seems to me that they even missed the last part. And I will rise again on the third day. They're so stricken by the fact that he's telling them I have to suffer and I have to die. They're not even contemplating the resurrection at this point. And Peter's like, wait a minute. What do you mean, Messiah? Christ, that you have to suffer? That you have to die? Their vision was human. Stricken by the description of suffering, they missed the foretelling of the resurrection. There's so much more depth of meaning to this than the statement I'm about to say, but isn't it true that even in our lives sometimes we miss or we're easily caught up in the difficulty of the road that God's calling us to? That we fail to contemplate and remember the glory of the destination. We get caught up in the difficulty, the suffering. Forget the glory of the destination on the other side. Well, Peter, in verse 22, is struggling. And here's the man who just is declared the rock by which... The church is going to be built on Peter and his confession that Jesus is the Christ is this rock that the church is going to be built on. And I don't know if he's a little excited or puffed up about that, or he's certainly motivated and glad to hear it. But upon hearing Jesus's description of what it means to be the Messiah, Peter now in verse 22 takes Jesus aside for a minute. And maybe to some degree, this is a sign of respect, right? I'm about to rebuke you. Which is just, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. But I'm not going to do it in front of everybody else. So Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, come over here for a minute. And he calls him aside. Peter takes Jesus aside. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. What a vicious rebuke from the Lord. What a vicious retort to Peter's rebuke of him. Why? Think about this for a moment. First, we see that Peter exposes his fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. Wait a minute, Jesus. Your death can't happen. And you see that that he says, far be it from you, Lord. And what that means, and what Peter is saying is, God forbid this. That's what he's saying to Jesus. God forbid this. Jesus, you're saying you have to suffer and you have to die. God forbid it. God forbid it. And of course, Jesus knows. God ordained it. What do you mean, God forbid it? God has ordained the cross. God has ordained this suffering. God has ordained this mission that I am on. And who are you, Peter, to say, God forbid it? 
far be it from you, Lord. God forbid it that this should happen to you. We know if Jesus did not go to the cross, he'd not be able to finish the mission as Messiah. And here we see Peter setting himself up against the mission of God. We see uh, Peter setting himself up as a trap, as a stumbling block uh, against the mission of God. And Jesus quickly, quickly shows Peter the seriousness of his error. Does he not? Get behind me, Satan. You see it in verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me. Why does he call him Satan? I think we find the answer in Matthew 4, where Jesus is is hearkening back. He's, He's relating to his temptation in the wilderness. Where Satan met Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan's great temptation to Jesus was that he would would be a, a savior without suffering. Satan's great temptation to Jesus was, hey, listen, you're hungry. Turn this bread, turn this stone into bread and you're not going to be hungry anymore. Oh, you just... Get yourself up on the, on the tower and cast yourself down. And the angels, they'll come and they'll, they'll save you. You're not even going to as much as stub your toe if you were to cast yourself off the tower. If you would just give a nod to me and worship me, I would make you the ruler of all things. You could rule and you don't even have to suffer. And Jesus, cast him away. And it says in Luke that Satan would then return at a more opportune time. Here he is. At least the spirit of what he was doing. Getting in the way of Christ's mission on the cross. Getting in the way of suffering. Peter was a hindrance to him, meaning he was a stumbling block. He was getting in the way of him that he could trip over him and not fulfill the mission. Peter was in the way that he could stumble on him and not fulfill the mission. Peter was like Satan did, tempting him to say, Jesus, you can be a Messiah that doesn't suffer. You can be a Messiah that doesn't have to go through this, that you don't have to experience the cross. Wait, what are you talking about? You're the Messiah. You can rule. You don't need to suffer. And Jesus set on the mission, Jesus's heart that knew the mission needed to be, be accomplished. He looked at, at, at Peter and, and he said, get out of my way. Get out of my way. That's the intensity and the passion of his response. You're like the devil in my way, trying to distract me, trying to cause me to stumble. I have a mission. Get out of my way. You're an offense. You're a hindrance. You're a trap. That word hindrance is like a trap where the bait is set. That's what that word depicts. You're like a a trap with bait to distract me. Get out of my way. 
Peter's tantalizing him with a root that avoids the suffering that's necessary. And here's what we see. There's a world of difference between the things of God and the things of man. Is there not? There is a world of difference between the way that God sees things and the way that we see things. And he says, Peter, you're thinking like a dude. You're thinking like a man. God had just revealed to you that I'm the Messiah, and you immediately transitioned back into thinking like a man. And you need to get out of my way because you're a trap. Get behind me, Satan, because this is not what God is calling me to do. I'm on a mission, and I am going to accomplish it, and you're not going to get in my way. Calvin says it this way in reference to this passage. How comes it that he who so mildly on all occasions guarded against breaking even a bruised reed thunders so dismally against a chosen disciple? The reason is obvious. That in the person of one man he intended to restrain all from gratifying their own passions. Though the lusts of the flesh, as they resemble wild beasts, are difficult to be restrained, yet there is no beast more furious than the wisdom of the flesh. It is on this account that Christ reproves it so sharply and bruises it, as it were, with an iron hammer to teach us that it is not only, I'm sorry, to teach us that it is only from the word of God that we ought to be wise. Why is he so sharply, Jesus, who was so gentle as to not even bruise a reed, is show, so sharply and intensely thundering against the chosen disciple? The reason's obvious. Because he is not just declaring for his own mission, for uh, Satan to get out of his way, for Peter to get out of his way, but he is declaring that yet, that for all of us, that, that our passions and our desires and our worldly wisdom is like a beast that's coming after us, and, and he is saying, you have to so sharply, as I am so sharply, thunder against it to get out of your way so that you would only gain wisdom from the Word of God and nothing else for your lives. Those who seek to follow Jesus, those of us who seek to follow Jesus, we need a periodic reorientation to kingdom values. Do we not? We need to be reoriented. It's hard to suffer. I mean, when I think about this, I think of Jesus' communications to his disciples. Sometimes I think about our evangelism. Right? I mean... We're, we're constantly talking to people about Jesus, and He's going to make your life better. And, and, and if you follow Jesus, things are going to be great. And if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be wonderful. You don't see that kind of evangelism come out of Jesus' mouth. When Jesus speaks of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and what His mission is, and what you're going to see our mission is in turn, He's always speaking of the cost. 
going to see the gain. And suffering is so much better. Because I think, oh, thanks, man. You are the man. You can hear it. I was just suffering. <clears throat> a little bit. <clears throat> now I gained. Doug's sacrifice. I don't know. It's not right. I don't think I keep going down there. <coughs> Don't want to do that, Matt. God help me in this. So easily distracted. I am so prone to the passions of my flesh. What do you dream about? What do you desire? We read passages like it's easier for a camel to sit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, well, I'm not rich. Probably in the top 1% on the face of the planet, even if you don't have much here. I got Netflix. I got a full belly. I got Amazon Prime. Just saw the bill for Disney come through last night. Got my Disney app. Jesus goes on to turn to his disciples. After rebuking Peter, and he explains, You want to follow me? Pick up your cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he's he's depicting to these disciples an image in their mind of a Roman cross. Make no mistake, the cross he's heading to, he's depicting in their mind the, the reality that the Romans would have you pick up the horizontal portion of the cross and carry it yourself to the to the part of the cross that's already driven into the ground. You're carrying the element of your own death by yourself to the place where they're going to nail you to it. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and pick up your cross. You want to know what it's like to follow me? You want to know what it's like to be my follower? As I am heading to my mission to suffer, you're going to know me in my suffering. You want to relate to me, you're going to relate to me in my suffering. If you want to be a part of what I'm doing, and you want to be a follower of Christ, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then follow me. God help me. To rebuke the beast of my own desire. To have that same passion rise up in me that rose up in Christ and yell, get out of my way. Get out of my way. This mission is so much more important than my new car. This mission is so much more important than a bigger house. This mission is so much more important than my comfort. This mission is so much more important than me saving enough for vacation this year. Get out of my way. I need to follow Jesus. I have to pick up my cross. I need to deny myself. Well, why would I do that? 
And of course, God, knowing that we are motivated by our own desires, gives us another reason. For whoever would save his life, you're going to lose it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in my effort to have life, to save my life, to enhance my life, to benefit my life, to gain in life, to pursue my own desires and my own life, in my, desi- in my desire to save my life, the very thing that I want to save, in that desire I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. Deny yourself. Know me in my suffering. Pick up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. What's it going to profit a man? He gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Simply saying, we cannot save ourselves through our efforts. We cannot save ourselves through our efforts. However, if we surrender all to him, we gain everything. Amen? See, he's speaking of value. What's it profit a man to gain everything in this world if you lose your soul? How much is your soul worth? Yeah, you can get all of that stuff. You can pursue that stuff. You can pursue comfort. You can pursue vacations. You can pursue more and more and more and more. But what profit is that if you lose your soul? In comparison of value, the gaining of things in this earthly world are nothing compared to eternity. Nothing compared to the saving of your soul. See, Peter, you misunderstand. You misunderstand. You're, you're worried about me suffering here on this earth. You're worried about me being killed or suffering at the hands of the Sanhedrin or the religious Jewish leaders. You're, you're consumed with man's ideas of how things should work. You have no idea that the cross is necessitated because I'm going to save everybody who follows me. I'm going to die for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to be raised again. And I'm going to sit at the right hand of God in glory. And that glory compared to that suffering is is so much more. Peter, you're thinking like a man. You don't even realize that the temporariness of the suffering that I will endure is nothing compared to the glory of salvation, the glory of me sitting at the right hand of my Father, sat down, it is finished, it is complete. Peter, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking how God wants you to think. What good is it to gain everything and lose your soul? But if you lose your life, You'll gain it. You see, God understands us, right? 
You want to gain your life? He gets what motivates us. You want to gain your life? Guess what? If you think like God has called you to think and not like a man, here's what you need to do. You need to lose your life for my sake. Don't miss that part. Lose your life for my sake. What does that mean? This is your new priority. Boy, does this passage not call us to sit back and reorient? To not cause me to think soberly about the priorities of my life. To think soberly about what really means something and what doesn't. To think soberly about value and what really is of value in this life and in the next. Profits a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Jesus is better, folks, right? We just sang it. Jesus is better. His work, his accomplishment on the cross on our behalf, the fact that we get him in glory is better. It's better. The things of this world are dim. The things of this world are fleeting. The things that we buy are of future garage sales. The things that we want to purchase will be filled with rust someday. The things that we want to pursue and go after are of temporal happiness. But His glory, Him, who we get at the end, in glory with Him, is so much better. Jesus is better. Amen? He is better. He is who we get. He is who we follow. And so what does that mean? That means we deny ourselves and we spend that. That is at the expense of what He has called us to do in this life. Denying ourselves, serving others. Following Christ. Our prayer should be, God, spend spend my life, i.e. my time, my talents, my the things you've given me, tangible things, my treasure. Spend it building your kingdom. Spend my life doing your work. Help me. Help. That, that was my prayer in the car on the way here this morning as I thought about this passage. God, Help me. That's all I can say. Help me. Help me to care about what you care about. Help me to rise up with a passion that rebukes distractions in my life. Get out of my way. Get behind me. Help me to recognize that you as the Savior were set like flint on your mission. And you walked without any distraction. And you walked all the way to the cross. And you suffered. And you died. And you didn't just experience the physical pains of an awful physical death on a cross. But you experienced the the spiritual reality of becoming sin for us. The spiritual reality of becoming the most despicable sight in human history. As you hung on a cross, you took upon yourself the judgment of God for all sin. You accomplish that suffering for us on our behalf. 
so we don't have to. Want to follow me, Jesus said? Pick up your cross. Pick up your cross. Start walking behind me. Because I'm headed for suffering. I'm headed for death. And the requirement of a disciple of Christ is death. A willingness to die to yourself. A willingness to deny yourself for Him. A willingness to pick up your cross and to sacrifice and to deny. For what? For future glory that is so incomparable to anything you can gain in this world. Would we bargain things of temporary value for that of eternal and ultimate value? What's your mission? Let's soberly think about what we value most. And make sure our priorities are in order this morning as we worship. Amen. God calls us to a great thing. Jesus is calling us to follow him. To deny ourselves, to pick up our cross. And follow in his example. And I tell you what, if we lose our life for his sake, we gain it. Amen. We gain a life that we can't come up with in our own brains and in our own flesh, with our own fleshly desires. We gain a life that comes from following Him, that comes from Him. And in the end, we gain Him in glory. The passage goes on, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Then we will repay each person according to what He's done. And he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And what we see here is only the work of Christ as he did complete his mission are good enough to get us to heaven. Listen, we are not getting to heaven because of our good works. Only the work of Christ and him completing his mission enables us to go to heaven. We add nothing to it. But we do see treasures in heaven, storing up treasures in heaven that our good works have an effect on our eternity once we're there. And we see that throughout the scriptures. So there's a motivation, there's a passion that says, listen, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth that, as I already said, are, are for future garage sales, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. As you serve God, as you deny yourself, as you live in such a way to, to follow in the examples of the sufferings of Christ and to pursue Him, you store up for yourself treasures in heaven. He's going to come again. There's controversy that I'm not going to get into right now about what this is referring to, whether it's his transfiguration or his second coming or the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 78. There's, there's, there's some debate about what Jesus is referencing, and we're going to hear more about it in chapter 24 for it to be addressed. But here's, here's what we know. They were remembering Christ's finished work on the cross in place of sinners. And we're going to follow in his example. And, and here's what we know about this, that he will come again. And our mission is to think godly thoughts. And to pursue 
God in our denying of ourselves and not think like men. We must be people mindful of the things of God rather than the things of man. I want to end with this. I want you to pray with me this way. God, we need you to bring to mind for us those things those priorities that would distract us. God, we ask that you would help us bring to mind those things that are a trap, those passions that are like a wild beast that drive us, those things that would get in our way from pursuing you. God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would well up within us a passion and an ability to to yell and to rebuke those things to get out of our way. That we would be a people that understands what it means to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, to follow you with our whole heart. That we know you will come again. That we know there will be future glory. That to lose our lives to you is only to really truly gain them. God, to be distracted and to work to gain our lives in man's way is the surest way of losing them. Set our hearts like yours, like Flint, to be on mission, regardless of the suffering in this temporal world. Help us to look to you. Be on mission with you. And accomplish that for which you have called us. As you accomplish the greatest mission. As you went to the cross to save us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. We are going to now...